You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, an editor on the markets team. You didn't even try this time I've, for the sidekick. Uh, yeah, I've, bit, did I've you? run out of wacky intros. I, I gotta get I gotta work on that. <laughs> We're done with it. All right. <laughs> Well, this week on the show, it's easy to get confused or spooked watching markets day to day. Rising worries of a second COVID wave triggered a nasty stock sell-off yet again. But with the rally still largely intact, what's an investor to do? We're joined by a fund manager who has beaten 95% of his peers over the last five years. He'll explain his process for picking stocks and how he's looking at long-term secular trends that are being catalyzed by the pandemic. And as always, we'll close out the show with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And by all means, if you see something crazy in markets, give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490. And maybe we'll play your voicemail on the show. Or if you just have some suggestions for us or a guest you'd like to see on the show or, I don't know, some criticisms of Sarah, maybe some praise of me, whatever it may be. What do you think, Sarah? I've got to say, Mike, it seems like people have more time on their hands. There have been plenty of crazy things in in the markets to talk about. Yet our listeners, maybe I shouldn't be calling them out. After weeks in which you were really giving it to us, now you've just pulled back. You're leaving us hanging. Yeah, yeah. Get on the hotline. Give us a call. We get lonely here (laughs) on, on our podcast, our socially isolated podcast. But Sarah, as you pointed out, a very interesting guest on the show this week Um, comes from a a firm that I'm I'm really fascinated with. Uh, They're called Poland Capital Management. They're based in Florida down near you, Sarah. So maybe you can go and stop by and say hi when uh, when the world's back. When this is all over. When the world's (laughs) back to normal. Uh, But his name is Dan Davidowitz, and he manages uh, the Poland Growth Fund. Uh, he's also the firm's chief investment officer. And so I've been, I'm looking at the performance of this fund over the last year, two years, three years. I mean, it's really pretty impressive. It's beaten, you know, not just the S&P, but if you look at the sort of Russell growth indexes and the S&P growth indexes, it, it's beaten all of them uh, on basically last year, last two years, three years, uh, four years, five years. So um, it's it's good to have uh, a, a successful manager like this on the show. 
So without further ado, his name is Dan uh, Davidowitz. Wait, I already said that, but <laughs> regardless, <laughs> welcome to the show, Dan. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Dan, I, you know, I know a little bit about the firm. I know you tend to run funds that are, are sort of uh, concentrated portfolios. And correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but, you know, usually about 20, 25 stocks in a fund. Um, you tend to buy and hold. You know, there's not a lot of, of turnover in the fund. Um, you know, I both of those elements I find fascinating. So we'll get into, into that a little bit. But Kind of walk us through basically your your sort of approach for picking a stock. You know, just the simple, you know, where do you start as a growth manager uh, when it comes to trying to find stocks to buy? Sure, sure, Mike. And yeah, almost all of that was accurate that you said about us. The only inaccurate part was I'm, I'm not the CIO of the firm. We don't have that title. Uh, I'm co-head of our large company team, but that's okay. I like, I like uh, title inflation too. So thank you for promoting me. <laughs> all right. I, I appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the simple thing is you're absolutely right. We, we invest in uh, what we, we think of as high quality concentrated growth. And so my team is the large company team. We have three different strategies in my team. The one that I run you right is our, our flagship, the Pullen Growth Fund. It's also called our focus growth strategy. Uh, and that's a 31 plus year old product. And I've been at Pullen Capital for 15 years. So I'm only, I'm only, I've only had my hand in about half the track record uh, of this product, but uh, we run two other portfolios that are essentially very, very similar, uh, different geographic exposures, but high quality concentrated growth. And then we also have two other investment teams at Poland Capital, one that does small cap investing, small companies, and one that does emerging markets. And, and again, high quality concentrated growth. So that's what Poland Capital is about. We think it's really, really important first and foremost to protect our clients' capital. And that's really what we're we talk about uh, it's the what, the way we live. It's a bit unique for a, a growth manager to think that way, to think about preserving capital first and then growing capital second. And so it's important for us to only invest in what we think are the most competitively advantaged and financially superior companies and nothing less than that. And so concentration, a lot of people used to think uh, meant higher risk because you're investing in fewer companies. That's against the the concept of diversification. Uh, but what we found, and, and actually academic studies have even found, is that you really don't need that many companies in a portfolio to achieve adequate diversification. We think you get that you know, maybe at 15 stocks in your portfolio. We typically, like you said, around 20 to 25 companies in our portfolio, but we hold them to these extremely high standards. You know, Everybody says they invest in quality, right? Nobody says they, they don't, but we actually put metrics on that. You're talking about concentration and how you can actually run a very well-diversified, well-performing portfolio that is so concentrated. I find really interesting, especially in the current moment, when we are constantly hearing people look at indexes, passive indexes, and pointing at how concentrated they are. And they usually say that that is a negative aspect of the indexes. Uh, but obviously, you're a growth manager. Your job is to find high quality growth companies. But I do want to ask you, is it at all surprising to you that growth has had such a long and such a great run over other styles in the market? I mean, I look at your Poland Growth Fund hitting a record high this past week alongside the S&P Growth Index and some very popular growth companies as well. Is it surprising to you that they have held up so well through the bull market, but also in the downturn as well? It's, it's a question, Sarah, we get asked like every day is, you know, yeah. when is growth, 
when is the growth run over after you know, <laughs> you know more than a decade of growth outperforming value? And by the way, you know, I consider myself a growth investor, Poland Capital. We are growth investors. Most of my investment team, including myself, came from the value school of investing. So I, I worked in New Jersey before coming to Poland Capital 15 years ago at what was considered a deep value shop. Um, uh, many of my uh, colleagues come from the Columbia Value School of Investing or have worked uh, in what they would be considered value shops over the years. And so we were very, very steeped. And, and our founder, David Poland, who passed away um, eight years ago, uh, also Graham and Dodd disciple, Warren Buffett disciple. So we come from that camp. We believe in the margin of safety, right? But I think it's important to kind of take apart the growth versus value argument because we think it's a kind of a false construct. Growth and value are not um, two different things, right? And it, when you look at indexes, especially when you, you know, some of the ones you mentioned, like the S&P growth index or the Russell 1000 growth index, Russell 1000 value index, whatever, um, the way those indexes are constructed are using oftentimes valuation metrics, right? So especially the Russell indices, what gets in the, in the value side is usually low price to book, uh, low price to long-term earnings growth. And what gets thrown into the, the growth, that's the value side. On the growth side, it's the high ones, right? High price to book. High. So that to, to us, growth is not defined by high PE. That doesn't make sense for us. Growth is defined by growth in earnings per share, growth in free cash flow over time. And so we take a little bit of issue with the construct of indexes that are compiled using valuation only uh, as what puts them in that, in that bucket. So that being said, what this growth outperformance, what's it been driven by? It's not really been driven by, as it historically has been, by multiple expansion, right? When you think back to the tech bubble especially, uh, and that's usually where people think about where growth outperformed value for a long time and then finally uh, underperformed because valuations got to extreme levels. That's not what we're seeing, right? And for most of the great growth companies that we study anyway, we're seeing their returns being driven by earnings per share growth, free cash flow growth, that's been well-supported, uh, the valuation's then well-supported by the fundamentals. I also think you have to you know, look at what is going on in the world today. So uh, a huge amount of disruption in many, many industries, right? A lot of those industries, let's say retail, energy, financial services, tend to find more weighting in value indexes than they are in growth. The disruptors, you know, which are the large tech companies today, internet-enabled businesses, tend to be more in those growth indexes. And so you, you're seeing real disruption and the disruptors being in different camps. And we don't see a lot of that going back in the, the genie bottle, so to speak. We don't see the disruption stopping. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Sir, the key takeaway there is you may claim Dan as a Florida man, but as you heard, he's really a Jersey guy. I'm claiming him for Jersey. <laughs> Rutgers, Rutgers for the win. Mike, you are going to take any example you could Absolutely. to take that and run with it. But the truth is the two of us are currently both in Florida. So as of right now, right. we're both Florida, fine, Florida men fine. or Florida women. Right. You, you both have had alligators in your yards from what I understand, too. It's not uncommon, yes. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's, it's Florida, what can you say? To, to pick up on that notion of valuation and growth, I mean, I'm looking at the, the growth funds holdings, uh, at least as, as uh, I guess it's as the end of the uh, first quarter, uh, and top holding Microsoft. Boy, what a spectacular run that stock has had. And like you said, one of those quality stocks, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about many hiccups with a company like that. But looking at just sort of the the vanilla P.E. on a trailing basis, I mean, it's getting up close to 34, 35 times earning. How do you sort of, you know, look at that as a growth manager? Do you look more like a peg ratio type of thing or, you know, is there a valuation? I mean, I think that might be Microsoft's highest trailing P.E. at least since like the the scary days of the turn of the century around the, uh, the bubble days. I mean, not anywhere near the same situation it was then, but. When do the valuations really start to raise your eyebrows? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to think about valuation uh, when you're investing in any company, but certainly in growth companies, you have to you have to have a reasonable basis for valuation. You can't just ignore it, at least not in our opinion, you can't ignore it. For our from our perspective, I, I should mention that valuation is often the last thing we talk about. So it's important for us to start with and prove out that a business is so great that we want to own it. Right, that it's so superior and so competitively advantaged and so much growth available to us. We want to own it. Then we decide, is there an attractive enough price? And the way we think about valuation is, in a, is about the expected return over the next five years. So we think about everything in five and 10 year increments. We don't think about anything in quarters or even the next year or two. So you know, with great companies that have massive competitive advantages and secular growth trends behind them, it's often not that difficult to project what earnings are going to look like or what free cash flow is going to look like five years from now within a reasonable range. It's not like the average company where the, the, the potential outcomes are so wide. You know, for a company like Microsoft, it's actually a fairly narrow um, set of, of, uh, uh, of circumstances that are going to happen over the next five years. And so we know what the earnings and cash flow look like today. We have a, a conservative estimate of what it's going to look like five years from now. We know what the PE is today. And then we make a conservative estimate five years from now. So we never assume multiple expansion. We assume it'll either be the same or lower because certainly within the next five years, most businesses will likely be growing slower than they are today. And so we use a conservative estimate, again, on both earnings and multiple five years from now. And if we can see a path to double-digit annualized returns from here to there, we're very comfortable. And with Microsoft, we certainly see that today. By the way, We've owned Microsoft um, this time around for the last three or four years. Uh, we've owned Microsoft in our portfolio now three times in 31 years, and it's been a holding about half the time. So almost 15, 16 years um, we've held it. The last time we sold it back in 2010, Microsoft was a much smaller company, even though it was very, very large, growing at about 2% per annum. This was before they made a pivot to the cloud, right? Before they moved to a subscription revenue model across all of their franchises before Azure, which is obviously tremendously large now. And so it was about a 2% grower 
10 years ago. Fast forward today, it's a larger business growing in the low to mid-teens organically, which is incredibly difficult for a company this size. Why? Well, because the subscription revenue model gives them a lot more pricing power. It allows them to fight piracy, which they haven't been able to do for a long time. Uh, But now when you can only get the most recent version of Windows or Office by subscription from Microsoft's own data centers, you've got to pay for it. You can't pirate it. And Azure being a platform uh, that is you know, the second choice now behind Amazon Web Services, but certainly uh, a very, very powerful engine in its own right with massive, massive opportunity for growth. And so it's a, it's a much better company today and it's a much faster growing company today with much more sustainability, even though it already was basically a monopoly before this, it's now a fast growing monopoly. And so that valuation, like you said, on a trailing basis, you know, is maybe a little bit high when you look at it historically. But given what we know about Microsoft today and where it's going, it's very, very reasonable. Looking at the weighting in the fund, you know, it's creeping up to 10, 11 percent, uh, at least at the end of the first quarter. Is there do you set a limit on on the weighting? You know, I, as you mentioned in the, the beginning, that running a concentrated portfolio uh, does have that risk that if a stock's really cruising, you, you know, it's it's going to start really dominating the portfolio. Do you have any sort of cap on, on what you would give uh, a single stock as a weighting? Yeah, it, Microsoft's about as high as we typically let companies go. So around that 10, 11 percent and, it, you know, is is about as far as we're willing to go. We will sometimes let them appreciate a little bit past that level if we don't see any really compelling reason to take it down. If we still think you have this combination, which we think in Microsoft's case you have, where it's a unique combination of moat you know, competitive advantage, that is, growth and valuation on your side, then we're usually willing to allow it to drift a little bit higher than that, but not much. You know, we typically don't go much higher than where Microsoft is right now. Do you ever worry about regulatory issues or do you find yourself discussing it? I mean, I can't tell you how many times it's been brought up to me over the past year, especially leading up to the election. Everyone's saying, look, antitrust regulation is a bipartisan issue, blah, blah, blah. Um, But considering the fact that Microsoft is a large holding, Facebook, also Google Parent Alphabet. Is that something that you guys do take into consideration at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. I mean, you have to you have to think about policy regulatory risk in, in any business. And it's kind of part of our investment philosophy and process because the vast majority of the companies that we own have a monopoly, duopoly, or oligopoly-like structure to them. They became, they create, oftentimes they created industries and then dominated industry. So you mentioned for sure, Microsoft, uh, Google, Facebook, throw, throw MasterCard and Visa in on that conversation. If you, if you even more narrowly define sub industries, you could say Adobe certainly dominates the market for creative software. Um, we, we see this all the time. And so, uh, what we're really interested in is, is there anything that can disrupt the business model or the earnings compounding, uh, that we expect from these companies? And so there's often a lot of saber rattling, that goes on, but it's rare that we find th- that that governments will really destroy a competitive advantage or um, the earnings power of a company. So even if you're talking about the potential breakup, let's say of um, Facebook or or Google, which we think would be really stretching for a government, right? Because you have to prove, at least in the United States, you have to prove that consumers are harmed. And I don't know exactly how you'd prove that when these services are free to consumers. But let's just assume they do. We don't even think. We think the sum of the parts could be at least equal to, if not greater than the whole that you see today. And so, you know, it, nothing really worries us at the moment, but for sure, we're always looking at uh, regulatory risks. You know, it's kind of interesting because 
today, a lot of people want to talk about ESG and ESG risks. You know, do we see anything? How do we think about ESG risks? Well, we think about them the same way we think about all risks. We want anything that gets in the way of the compounding of any of our companies is, is something we want to be concerned with. It reminds me of that. There's a Trump tweet uh, a week or two ago about the Microsoft government contracts. That must have uh, that must have turned a few hairs on your head, Gray, when you saw that, Dan. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because uh, I guess the the narrative before was uh, that Trump uh, was really so against Jeff Bezos and Amazon Web Services that he was kind of handing this over to Microsoft. I mean, I, it's it's a nice story. Um, at the end of the day, both of those companies have extremely capable services. And um, if you're doing any business with the federal government where you're supplying your data centers to secure government information, uh, the highest level of scrutiny has to go into that. And and honestly, uh, both Amazon and Microsoft, and I throw Google in the mix on this too, have platforms to host, to be the platform for uh, cloud services for the highest levels of government. And, and that is not easy to achieve. And one of the reasons why we love those businesses is it's, it's hard for anybody else to come eat, com- compete in this business you know, at that level. Facebook, for instance, certainly could have a cloud platform if they wanted to. They have the infrastructure to be able to do it. They have no interest in being in this market because they don't see a, a reason to be the fourth best cloud platform in the Western world. You know, you mentioned uh, Amazon. I I don't see it in the top 10. Do you do you hold it in the fund somewhere? We don't. We haven't owned Amazon in 10 years. Um, and this is a this is kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, in our concentrated portfolio, we don't feel compelled to own anything. Um, so, you know, obviously we're going to look very different than a benchmark. If we only own about 20 companies today, we own 21. Uh, we're not going to look anything like a benchmark. And we don't have to get our returns the same way the benchmark gets its returns either. So if you look at our portfolio today, we don't own Amazon, we don't own Apple, we don't own Netflix uh, in the portfolio. We've owned Amazon in the past, we've owned Apple in the past, um, never owned Netflix. The reason um, that we we did own Amazon for a while and then have not in a long while is because I mentioned we we stick really closely to our guardrails, those five guardrails that I mentioned before. Amazon uh, it's an amazing business and probably the most competitively advantaged business we don't own in the United States for sure uh, is because their building of Amazon Web Services and their own logistics infrastructure and all of the things that they've been building internally over the years have brought the metrics that we care about, the return metrics, the free cash flow metrics below our thresholds, right? Now, those thresholds are there to keep us out of trouble because most companies, when you see a deterioration in those metrics, it's usually trouble coming, Right. Amazon is the exception to that rule. Amazon has been investing from a, uh, a position of strength. It's been making itself better. Uh, it was hard for us to know exactly what some of those investments were as they were going because they weren't 100% open <laughs> about that, especially as they were building uh, AWS in their early years. Uh, and it's also hard to know what the returns on those investments are going to be over time as well. In a company like Amazon, remember, Amazon's core business, it's it's original core business, which is online retail, is an extremely low margin business. So when you're evaluating these type of investments in an already low margin business, uh, it's very, very difficult to know what the sustainable margins are, what the real valuation is at any moment in time. Very, very difficult. Today, the vast majority of the profits actually come from AWS, not from um, the retail business. And so it's a different business, still a great business. Today, it actually does meet our guardrails. Amazon does today. Uh, the reason we don't own it today is because the valuation is not at a place where we feel like we can get the kind of return that we hope for. So uh, we don't own it. 
Maybe one day we will again. Uh, we love the business for sure. It's the only uh, company that we cover that we actually have two analysts that cover and not one. Uh, not just because the company itself is so great, but because it competes with or potentially competes with almost every company it wants to compete with. So we have to be well-versed on Amazon, but we don't own it today. And the same thing for Netflix is also because of the guardrails. It does not meet our guardrails today. We do study it. We do know it uh, quite well. And Apple's a little bit of a different story. We did own it for a long time, but we feel like kind of the best days of growth for Apple are, are behind it. That's why we don't own it anymore. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Just considering the time that we're living in right now with the coronavirus, uh, many of us quarantining, looking at your portfolio or even stocks that might be on your watch list, have you found any company or any industry that this has really completely changed the growth prospects for going into the future or even something you don't own that now you might see value in considering what this might encourage out into the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, potentially, yes. I mean, it's in the middle of it. You want to be a little bit careful about how much you extrapolate um, because it's hard to know exactly how, how much human behavior is permanently versus temporarily changed. But we do think there are some obvious beneficiaries and, and a lot of them are kind of the, the trends that were already in motion, right? So if you think about some of the biggest secular trends that we see out there and the ones that you'd see as you look down our portfolio holdings are um, things like the move from offline commerce you know, to e-commerce and from offline advertising to online advertising, from cash and check to digital forms of payment. Those were, those were obviously well in motion for a long time. But because of uh, coronavirus and because of uh, people sheltering in place and kind of being forced to do things a little bit differently, those have accelerated, those trends have accelerated, and we don't see those um, turning back. If anything, they're just catalyzing um, faster adoption of some of these technologies. Some of the other things are a little bit harder to say, like, you know, will office space not be as attractive, you know, as people now become more comfortable with remote work? Um, I'm not 100% sure that's going to happen. You know, there, there may be a need for a little less office space or not, because maybe you need to dis- do built-in distance more. So maybe even if you're going to have fewer people in your workplace, you may need more space for those people. So some of those things are not yet, I'm, sh- I'm not really sure about, you know, other things like um, the long-term move away from uh, linear media consumption to non-linear media consumption. Again, very, very catalyzed by this. Um, we own a company in our portfolio today called ServiceNow, 
Um, ServiceNow is a software platform that essentially allows people to automate workflows. It's already been a strong growth company, but we see uh, tremendous adoption. We expect tremendous adoption for automated workflow because as people have to distance more, you need to build in more automation. And so um, we're seeing that pretty clearly. Uh, We're seeing things like Microsoft Teams and Zoom being adopted in in a very serious way. We don't think all of that we don't think the adoption necessarily goes backwards. Um, there are a couple of other companies that we're looking at today where um, there is like a, a collaborative software nature to them that we think it will be unlikely people turn back from uh, as they go back to work from normal. But, you know, again, you want to be a little bit careful. Yeah, Dan, I'm just curious what it's like to be a fund manager during all this. I mean, are you getting more sort of in calls from investors in the fund or any any panicked voices on the other line? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it must be a, a somewhat stressful time uh, with all this going on. You know, not so much. I mean, in the in the early, you know, I would say in the March period and mid-March when we were really starting to see cases start to come and, and getting ready for quarantining, um, there was a lot more concern about what would happen to some of our companies in the portfolio of people calling. But, you know, you got to remember, too, that we're we're mostly invested in these very financially heavy, you know, cash rich companies with big competitive advantages. So we're probably not the number one yeah. problem yeah. Uh, for people, you know, when they're looking at the types of companies that they own, we tend to have, you know, a lot of the strongest ones. So there wasn't a lot of panic or anything like that. There was a lot of questions. You know, there were a lot of questions about what um, stock performance would look like and which companies were more vulnerable than others, which ones would have um, significant um, cash flow impact and which ones would not. And we didn't really touch on this at all, but at Poland Capital, we don't make market predictions or economic predictions. Um, we try to stay fully invested in the best companies that we think can power through any crisis. And, and you know, look, we've been doing this at Poland Capital for 31 years. We've seen a few crises along the way. Uh, this one is very, very different, obviously, but it allows us to know that we don't have to predict these things. We just have to build a portfolio that's re- that's resilient and companies that can um, survive and thrive and continue to invest through periods like this. And so um, that's exactly what we have. The companies, you know, we have a few companies that have been really, really impacted negatively. Um, Nike, Starbucks, Align Technologies, where businesses, you know, these are businesses where you actually physically have to go somewhere to buy something or to order clear aligners, right? They've been severely impacted, but they're continuing to invest in this period of time because they have the balance sheets to be able to do it. They're going to come out stronger on the other side. And so, you know, I think that helps uh, be, to be able to articulate that to our clients. And, and I think, uh, you know, having that very proactive outreach on our part has helped a lot. Well, it's uh, certainly a unique time. And I'm sure we could talk about this uh, forever, all day long. I wish that we could. Uh, but Mike, I, I think it's time for the crazy things. It's that time? I believe so. All right. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, thanks to Charlie Pellet. That's Bloomberg Radio's uh, famous Charlie Pellet with a little help for the show here. We're we're ratcheting up the gimmick, Sarah. I love it. I love it. We have. And if you've been to New York, you might recognize that voice. And that's because, yes, that is the man of the subway. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> and one of the nicest guys in the world, I will, I will also point out. Yes. And, and I, I can't believe he... I don't know if anyone would disagree with that. He's playing along with our gimmick, but that's that shows you how nice of a guy he is. So, Sarah, you kick it off. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? 
Uh, all right, I'll go. I had two, but I'll, I'll go with the fun one. Uh, I don't know if either of you saw. I just thought it was really interesting and a little bit kind of gimmicky, I guess you could say, too. Um, I guess the company shouldn't come at me after saying that. But Goldman Sachs has a new font. Uh, <laughs> it made headlines this week. It's called Goldman Sands. Uh, and the idea, they say, is to create a clear, contemporary, and credible font. And this was huge on their website. Uh, so I feel like Goldman Sachs, when you think of that font, the old font, it's really memorable. And I almost think it's going to be difficult to recognize the name for a bit uh, with a new font that sounds like Comic Sans. <laughs> I had not seen that. I yeah. didn't, I didn't Sarah, that. It's a historic day on the show because that's my craziest thing, too. I can't believe it. Oh, no yeah. way. And, you know, I what are the at odds? first I thought it was crazy, but then they kind of sold me on it. You know, they uh, you know, they they designed this font so that the S doesn't look like the five. <laughs> they they said the letters <laughs> need to be approachable without being whimsical. And I, <laughs> OK, <laughs> but I wonder. There's a lot of wow. thought, a lot of thought that goes. Into I, I know. I Check it out on their website. They they explain all the decisions they made on creating this font. It's, it's really kind of fascinating. I'd hate to be the Morgan Stanley design team right now. You know, they're burning the uh, midnight oil, having to come up with their own their own font now. But uh, all right, Dan, did they I'm sure they they warned you about our gimmick. Have you seen anything crazy in markets this week? You know, Mike, I, I, I have been struggling with this because, uh, first of all, I don't, I don't, uh, yes, I was warned about it and, and I don't spend a whole lot of time, believe it or not, looking at markets. So I, I have a hard time coming up with crazy things. So I, I'm going to tell you what surprises me and, and maybe Sarah can relate to this is that Floridians are actually surprised, uh, that there's a, an increase in cases in Florida. And that to me is crazy because if you're down here, and you're looking around, there's no surprises <laughs> about that, what people are doing and what they're not doing and the effect that it has. I mean, because I feel like, you know, this isn't really markets, right? Yeah. But it is because anything that we talk about these days starts and ends right. with COVID, unfortunately. And so uh, your people's opinions seem to be uh, influenced by that and the concern about what's going to happen with the economy going forward certainly seems to be. But I am in my conversations with my, my friends down here and my colleagues and less so with my colleagues, they're relatively intelligent people <laughs> that have good thoughts on these things. But, but, uh, down here in South Florida, people are genuinely surprised that there's a massive uptick in, uh, cases. And that to me is absolutely crazy. No, Dan, I can fully attest to that. I mean, I remember going to pick up food just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I would stay in the car and, family would, we run out with our masks on, just grab the food, get back in the car. But the amount of people I would see on the street, not wearing masks, walking around, people very close to one another. I actually had a, a neighbor because I, I had a family member who came and from another state and they were quarantining for a bit to make sure they were okay before coming to the house. A neighbor said, oh, you're doing that? This, I didn't think this was happening anymore. This isn't a thing. Um, and, and, and people are now shocked. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dan Davidowitz, thanks so much for joining the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. 
We also want to say a very big thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and also the voice of the New York subway. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.